You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today we start a new series, this on Norwegian polar explorer, Fritjof Nansen. Nansen is, to be honest, a really extraordinary man. He was the first person to cross Greenland, which he did on skis, and he held the record for furthest north for five years. He is often viewed as one of the pioneers of modern polar exploration for his innovative approach toward conducting his expeditions. This included using skis and dogs, and an emphasis on developing and using modern and scientific equipment. Also, he rejected the old approach of polar exploration of large, cumbersome expeditions. Instead, Nansen valued speed and mobility. But Nansen was not just an explorer. He was an accomplished scientist, doing groundbreaking research in the fields of the central nervous system and oceanography. And I'm not done. He was also a diplomat, playing a role in the establishment of Norway as an independent nation. Need more? Well, let's give him a Nobel Peace Prize for his humanitarian work. And there's more, but you'll just have to wait for the details. Now, despite all of these really cool things, I want to note that Fritjof Nansen was an immensely complex character. He was tall, athletic, and good-looking, the image of a Viking to the world. He had a brilliant mind and was passionate about the work that he did. However, he was also a very difficult man. He was overbearing and stubborn. Arrogant know-it-all might be a good description of the guy. But we will talk all about this and lots more in our story. I do want to note that we will focus on Nansen's life as an explorer, because that is what we do on this show. But I will spend some time on the other aspects of Nansen's life, as it's pretty remarkable. Anyhow, that is it for today's introduction. Let's get started with our series on Fritjof Nansen. Fritjof Verdel Jarlsberg Nansen was born on October 10, 1861, in Christiania, now called Oslo, the capital of Norway. As a note, I'm going to use the name Christiania for this series, as that is the name used by Nansen throughout his life. So, Christiania equals Oslo. Nansen was born into a rather strange political world. Norway was not an independent nation at this time, but part of the, quote, union between Sweden and Norway, end quote. But make no bones about it, Sweden was the boss in this relationship. The union between these two Scandinavian nations had happened in 1814, the result of the Napoleonic Wars. We should note that it wasn't as if Norway was terribly oppressed. It had its own autonomous government, and it was mostly independent, except for foreign affairs. But Norway had been free of outside lords before. People looked back on those times and lamented the current situation. Add in the revolutions of the 1800s, and you have a land brimming with a strong streak of nationalism. This is the world Nansen would grow up in, and it will be important in his life. 
Nansen's parents were Baldur Nansen and Adelaide Johanna Tekla Isidora Bulin Verdel Jarlsberg, which is quite the mouthful. Their marriage was the second for both. Baldur's first wife had died in 1854 of puerperal fever, a week after giving birth to the couple's only child. The child, a boy, would die at the age of 13 after a lifetime of health issues. Adelaide's first husband, an army officer, died in 1853 during a cholera epidemic, leaving her to care for the couple's five children. Nansen's mother came from an aristocratic family, of which there were not that many in Norway. She was criticized for marrying Baldur, as he was seen as beneath her socially. Many felt that she married him for security. Baldur was 41 at the time of the marriage, Adelaide 37. Baldur was seen as a smart, sensible man, but often consumed by monetary issues. Adelaide was known to be strong-willed and free-spoken. The big blended family would move into a large home just on the outskirts of Christiania, and there were more children to come, three boys. One died within a year of being born, while Fritjof was born in 1861 and Alexander a year later. I want to note that Norway was still a very rustic land at this time, almost a frontier. It was filled with mountains and glaciers and fjords. The upper third of the nation was, and still is, in the Arctic Circle. The northern regions were home to the Sami people, many living semi-nomadic lives as reindeer herders. Norway had fewer than 2 million inhabitants, with Christiania being the largest city, with a population of just 60,000. With all of this in mind, Norway would be the most innovative nation in one particular area, Skien. And I mention this because it's important to our story. Skien had been done for centuries in Norway, but mostly for practical reasons. It was a way of getting around in the winter. Skis were critical to the survivor of the Sami people in the north. In the 1800s, skiing emerged as the national pastime in Norway. People have described it as being part of the Norwegian national spirit and soul. As a result, you'll see skiing grow beyond practical measures and into a recreational pursuit and the nation's national sport. Downhill skiing was practically developed in Telemark, the province west of Christiania. Into all of this was born Fridjof Nansen and his family's home on the edge of the wilderness was a perfect place for Nansen to grow up. In school, he was not a great student, but he took to athletics such as skiing, skating, fishing, swimming, and later hunting. He spent hours, even days, exploring the forests and mountains, usually with his brother Alexander. He was, however, a loner in many ways, not making many friends at school. He was described as moody, and his relationship with his parents was never great. At one point, there were ten children in the house, and Nansen often felt like an afterthought to his parents, especially his mother. With his father, Nansen struggled all of his life to find a connection. Baldur was a lawyer who valued predictability and stability. He had no interest in the outdoors, although he always supported the activities his children showed interest in. Nansen would grow into a tall, handsome, blonde young man. Initially, he was heavy, but he lost the excess weight in his teen years. He excelled at individual sports such as skiing, skating, swimming, and gymnastics. And Nansen never lost his spirit of adventure. He would ski out into the wilderness, cutting his own trails and learning how to survive in the snow-covered Norwegian mountains. Nansen also embraced Norwegian nationalism. Like much of the rest of the population, Nansen would take pride in the homegrown literature, art, and science endeavors that emerged at this time. The nation's greatest artist was playwright Henrik Ibsen, whose critical and commercial success made him a point of pride for Norwegians. And skiing, Norway's national pastime, was growing as a sport, in particular in the European Alps. In 1877, Nansen's mother would die suddenly. With most of the children now moved away, Baldur would sell the family home outside of Christiania and move into a flat in the city. Over the next few years, Nansen would continue to improve as a skier and skater, 
At 18, he broke the world one-mile skating record, and the next year won the National Cross-Country Skiing Championship. He did a hiking tour of the Jutenheimen mountain range, the highest in the nation, and joined the Christiania Ski Club. A year later, he was off to the Royal Frederick University in Christiania. Nansen would consider engineering and forestry, but settle on zoology, specializing in lower marine creatures. He would do well in school, but the confines of academia were not his strong suit. And then, in December of 1881, the zoology department announced that they were looking for someone to visit the Arctic and collect specimens of marine life. Nansen would jump at the idea and get the job, mainly because he was the only one to apply. The idea of spending half a year in the Arctic held little appeal to most people, but Nansen embraced the opportunity. Nansen would thus sail north on the steamer Viking in March of 1882. The Viking was a big wooden sealing ship on her maiden voyage, and Nansen would collect his samples at the same time as the ship went seal hunting. He would not have to participate in the day-to-day activities on the ship, but he was expected to be part of the seal hunt. Nansen would do well on this expedition. The captain, Axel Krefting, liked the odd young man, and the two got along. Nansen would shoot seabirds and dissect them, take water temperatures, and collect all sorts of samples. He was also a good artist and made many outstanding sketches. By the way, Nansen's ability with the brush led some to encourage him to become an artist, but science would win out. As for seal hunting, Nansen would take to the boats when seals were spotted and go out to kill and collect the animals. Nansen, who was an outstanding shot, typically was a rifleman. For two months, the Viking moved north, trying to reach the seals before other ships beat them to it. By the way, on this voyage, Nansen would get a glimpse of the ship Vega. The Vega was famed for being the first ship to complete the Northeast Passage back in the late 1870s. This meant traveling through the icy Arctic waters from Norway to the Bering Sea, which is between Alaska and Russia. The ship had gone on to circumnavigate Europe and Asia. The leader of the expedition, Baron Adolf Erik Nordenskjul, was of Finnish and Swedish descent and was a hero to all Scandinavians. The Vega was now back to being a sealer, which is what she had been built for. But the sighting of the famed vessel roused some emotions in young Nansen, and he began to dream of going on his own voyage of exploration. The search for seals would take the Viking between Spitsbergen and Greenland. Along the way, Nansen continued to collect marine life specimens. In the process, he hunted, killing polar bears and even sharks. The Viking would, for a short time, get caught up in the ice off Greenland, where Nansen asked to go ashore. The captain, however, refused. The ice along the coast was unpredictable, and if Nansen was ashore when a passage out of the ice opened up, the captain didn't want to leave him stranded. That would mean his death. In fact, no European had reached the east coast of Greenland in hundreds of years due to this ice barrier. Nansen would have to file away the experience, but it was clear he had caught the exploration bug. Of his journey, Nansen would say that it was, quote, the first fatal step that led me astray from the quiet life of science, end quote. Nansen would return to Norway, his job complete. However, he would not return to school, and that's because he was offered a position at a museum in Bergen on Norway's west coast as curator of the zoological department. Nansen, only 21 years old, would take the job, which was good for him. The rigid structure of school was not in his best interest, and at the Bergen's museum, he would not just study, but he would get to do stuff alongside people he admired and respected. On the staff was Gerhard Omar Hansen, who had discovered the leprosy bacillus, and there was the museum's distinguished director, Daniel Danielson, an eccentric doctor who had made the institution one of the world's leaders in the study of living creatures. The people at the museum were doing the sorts of things that Nansen wanted to do. They were on the edge of scientific research in their fields. It was a great spot for an ambitious and wickedly smart young man. Also, Bergen's location on the ocean gave it access to a wide range of marine life, which was important to Nansen. 
Now, a few things about Nansen at this point in his life. One, as I noted, he was ambitious. He saw himself as the smartest guy in the room, and thus he went about promoting himself and what he did. To this end, he wrote an article for the Danish Geographical Journal about his time on the Viking. He would also write a series of articles for a sporting journal. These were small steps, but it did show that Nansen recognized the importance of being published. Two, at his new job, he focused on studying the nervous systems of marine invertebrates. But let's be clear, his ultimate goal was to understand the human nervous system. There was little understanding of either at this time, but Nansen, correctly, believed that if you could understand the nervous system of a simpler creature, such as a marine invertebrate, you could better understand the nervous system of humans. 3. Nansen, as I said, was a unique guy. He was clean-shaven when beards were the norm in Scandinavia, and he shunned wearing heavy clothing, often sporting only a light jacket, even in the winter. Women were attracted to him. In fact, many of his lifelong friends would be women. He struggled all of his life to find a connection with other men, just like with his own father. Most people attribute this to Nansen's personality. He could be moody, the life of the party one moment, brooding and prickly the next. And people, especially men, saw him as overbearing and arrogant. The word I've often seen attributed to him is overwhelming. I think some of this was because it was men who Nansen would have to compete and debate against all of his life. There just weren't many women in the fields of science and exploration and diplomacy. And so it would be men he would clash with when ideas were put on the table. And let's be clear, Nansen was never the kind of guy to back down. If he believed something was right, he'd fight for it to the bitter end. Nansen probably saw himself as the hero in an Ibsen play. He and only he knew the truth or the right path, and he had to fight against the ignorance and pettiness of those who did not share his vision. People will often comment on how inflexible Nansen could be, and how strident he was when he felt others were wrong. It's not hard to see why people found him unbearable to be around for anything but a short time. Anyhow, Nansen did well in these early years in Bergen. He had found a place at the museum, and began to develop his own theories and ideas and plans for the future. Also, he skied whenever he could, which leads us to a fun item. Bergen is on the west coast of Norway, while his hometown, Christiania, is on the southern coast along the big channel that leads into the Baltic Sea. It's about 180 miles, or 290 kilometers, away as the crow flies. There is a mountain range between the two cities. At this time, there was no train available to cross the mountains, so in the winter Nansen would simply ski from Bergen to Christiania when he wanted to go home. He would sometimes use the postal roads, but he was just as likely to head into the wilderness and blaze a trail on his own. It seems crazy that someone would do such a thing, go up into the mountains during the middle of winter, by himself, with no known trail. But that was Nansen. He would go cross-country, down steep slopes, over mountains, whatever it took. One time he spent two days in the mountains alone, except for his dog. He had no tent, no sleeping bag, no food. He slept between a boulder and a rocky outcropping at night, but he made it to where he wanted to go. He would even write a series of articles in the newspaper detailing his backcountry excursions. I think the skiing over the mountain story embodies Nansen's personality. He was bold and cocky and supremely confident, and he certainly saw the journey as being just as important as the destination. And I want to point out that it's amazing that he not only had the guts to do this, but the ability to get it done. But there is another thing about these stories that is very important. It proved to Nansen that skis could be used in just about any type of snow and terrain, and I want you to hold on to that thought as we will talk about it later. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about an event that will shape Nansen's future. In 1883, Adolf Erik Nordenschul, the famed Scandinavian explorer I mentioned earlier, had gone on an expedition to the east coast of Greenland. 
His ship had made its way through the thick ice on the coast, and Nordenschul would be the first European to step on Greenland's eastern shore since the days of the Vikings. He would head inland onto the ice cap about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, before turning around. Nansen was enthralled by the deed, writing, quote, My wanderlust was roused again. End quote. In his mind, he began to formulate how he could conduct an expedition, such as crossing Greenland, but we will get to that shortly. In 1885, Nansen would spend some time in Christiania, completing his required military service. Also, in that same year, his father would pass away. Nansen had never gotten along well with his father, and his relationship with the rest of his family was not great either. His half-brothers and sisters were older than him, and while he was cordial with them, they were never that close. His brother Alexander was a different story. They were quite close as children, but as they got older, their relationship would be strained at times. Again, Friedhoff's overbearing personality was likely to blame for much of this. Anyhow, Nansen would continue to work at the museum and publish his first scientific paper, a look at the nervous system in a tiny marine creature. The paper was well received. After that, he would take a six-month sabbatical from the museum to travel to the European continent to visit other leading scientists in his field. The idea was to broaden his horizons and forge his own path. The sabbatical was Nansen's first journey to continental Europe. He would travel first to Germany and then Italy. The result would be enlightening. Nansen had the chance to study and experiment alongside some of the great minds of Europe, many of them working in the same field of study, and he had access to the latest equipment. After a stint in Italy, Nansen would travel through Europe and then to England. It was then back to Norway and the Bergen Museum. In August of 1887, Nansen, through the museum, would publish a paper on the nervous system. The paper, titled The Structure and Combination of Histological Elements of the Central Nervous System, was groundbreaking in its field as it presents the modern nervous system as we know it today. Nansen showed the ability to be clear and concise in his report, something not always common in scientific journals at the time, or heck, even now. The ability to simplify things was always a strength for Nansen. Also, in addition to writing the paper, Nansen had done the illustrations himself. Nansen's views were confirmed by two other independently published reports at this time, one by embryologist Wilhelm Hiss and another by psychiatrist August Forel. These two men, and Nansen, thus helped establish the basis of modern neurology. Now, I am not going to lie to you and say that I understand all of Nansen's scientific work. I may have even gotten wrong some of the stuff I just said. But in the end, I can say that his work was exciting, bold, and innovative. And it made Nansen, who was just 25, one of the most interesting young scientists in Europe. In November of 1887, Nansen would submit the paper for his Ph.D. So here was Nansen, his views in paper causing a buzz in the scientific world. This surely would mean bigger institutions would come calling. And that's exactly what did happen. The first would be the University of Indiana in the United States. But he passed on the opportunity as he deemed Indiana too far away from the ocean to study marine biology. So where to next? Well, instead of the world of academics and research, Nansen was going to forge a different path one that he had been considering a long time. Friedhoff Nansen decided he was going to be the first person in history to cross Greenland. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, 
You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greenland. The world's biggest island had an attraction to Nansen and to other Norwegians. Greenland had first been settled by Vikings from Norway a thousand years earlier, and while those settlements would fade into history, some Norwegians felt a sort of kinship to the land. So let's talk about Greenland. Greenland is, as noted, the world's biggest island. It is 2.16 million square kilometers, or 838,000 square miles, of mostly ice cap. On average, it is 2,000 meters, or 6,500 feet, thick. The western side of Greenland is the most accessible, as the weather is milder and the land more than just snow-covered. It is where, even today, most of the people live. No one had ever crossed Greenland, but had been tried on at least eight occasions. All of the attempts had begun on the western coast. The most recent attempt had been in the summer of 1886, under the command of American naval officer Robert Perry. Striking out from Disco Bay, which is about 800 miles, or 1,300 kilometers, from the southern tip of the island, the expedition had penetrated the ice cap about 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, before retreating. That was only about a quarter of the way across the ice. A big question that loomed over any expedition was what lay in the interior of Greenland. People knew that, at least for a while, it was covered in ice. But did that change? Some people thought Greenland's interior would be ice-free, even fertile. And if there was ice, what was it like? Not all ice is created equal. All this made planning and the expedition a challenge as no one knew for sure what to expect. So regarding an expedition to Greenland, Robert Perry intended to return in 1888, much more knowledgeable and wiser regarding polar travel. However, he would be kept in Nicaragua by the U.S. government for another year, surveying possible canal routes. This was the door that Nansen needed. His plan was to cross with a small team using skis, he had demonstrated that skis could be used in most kinds of snow and terrain. The days of hundreds of men hauling sledges across the polar landscape were, in Nansen's opinion, long past. Although the English did not get that memo, as we will see when they start exploring Antarctica. Anyhow, in addition to using skis and employing a small, skilled team, Nansen proposed making the crossing from the east side of the island and heading toward the western side. Why do this? Well, if a team did traverse the interior and get to the eastern coast of Greenland, the unpredictable ice would make it very hard for those men to coordinate their extraction from the island. I mean, a team could reach the eastern coast of Greenland and find that the ice was blocking the coast for 50 miles out to sea. How would they get to their relief ship? Nansen felt that traveling from east to west was a better idea. This way, any expedition would arrive on a coast with many settlements. However, this plan had two really big red flags. The first is that it was difficult, even in the warm months, for a ship to actually get close to the eastern coast of Greenland. The ice on the coast was just too thick and unpredictable. The expedition would need to get as close to the coast as possible, and if they couldn't actually reach the shore, take small boats through the ice pack. They could even sit on the ice pack and let the drift take them closer to the coast, and if an opening in the ice appeared, they could hop in their boats and make a dash for the shore. This was all very risky, as again, polar ice just isn't that predictable. But there was another red flag regarding Nansen's plan, and that was if things went wrong, the expedition was doomed. 
they could not just turn around and head back to a friendly settlement. From the moment they landed on the eastern shore of Greenland, or the ice along the coast, the retreat was pretty much gone. The ship could hang around for a while, but as the ice shifted, a vessel might need to put out to sea to avoid getting trapped in the ice pack. So why take this risk? Well, Nansen felt that if men were given the chance to push forward or retreat, they'd take the easy way out and turn back. But if the best chance of survival was to go forward, they would do anything, risk everything, to make that happen. Nansen would later say their motto was, quote, death or the west coast of Greenland, end quote. And with that in mind, Nansen would hatch his plan for a crossing of Greenland in the summer of 1888. If he wanted to depart the following spring, that would not leave him with a lot of time to make his expedition a reality. To plan such an enterprise in such a short time frame was very risky, but Nansen had the utmost confidence in what he was doing. He would use skilled people, travel light, and move fast. Speed, above all else, was critical to Nansen's plan. The route he proposed would cross about 700 kilometers, or 435 miles, of Greenland's interior. His team would travel 30 kilometers, or about 19 miles, a day. That was twice what any polar expedition had even dreamed of traveling. If all went well, they would make the crossing in about 25 days. To be safe, the team would carry provisions for twice that number. With luck, they would reach the other side of Greenland and even catch a ship before the bays and fjords iced in for the year. They'd be back before the year was out. It was all wildly optimistic and dangerous. The first thing that Nansen did was to travel to Sweden, where he consulted his hero, Adolf Erik Nordenschul, the first man to make the Northeast Passage from Europe to Asia a decade earlier. Nordenschul was enthusiastic about Nansen's plan. He believed that skis were a good idea, although he himself did not ski. Skiing was still very much a Norwegian thing. But Nordenschul also recognized the tremendous risk involved. He was especially concerned about getting an expedition together in such a short time. Nansen would ask about using the Sami people, or Laps, or Laplanders, as they were called at this time by the Europeans. The Sami, Nordenschul said, were good to have on any expedition. Skiing was a part of their way of life, and surviving the harsh winter conditions of the north was something they did all the time. The Sami, however, Nansen was warned, were difficult to handle. Their culture was very different from the rest of Europe. In the end, Nordenschul enjoyed being a mentor to Nansen, and he reinforced most of what Nansen believed about how he should proceed with his plans. Nansen would announce his expedition plans on November 24, 1887, in the newspaper. In it, he called on people to apply to go on the journey. Nansen was looking for men with a very specific skill set. First, they had to be good skiers. That was critical. Second, he was not interested in city-raised men. He wanted men who were accustomed to hard work and long spells in the wilderness. He felt country types were his best option as they would be tough and adaptable. Third, he was looking for young men in good physical shape who would commit to an expedition long term. Fourth, he wanted only unmarried men who had no children. And fifth, he wanted Norwegians. For Nansen, this was a way to promote Norwegian nationalism and pride. To Danish explorer Gustav Holm, he would write, quote, With three to four of the best skiers to be found, I propose to sail on a Norwegian sealing ship at the beginning of June and around 66 degrees north latitude, attempt to approach the coast as closely as possible. End quote. Amongst the skiers, Nansen decided he would bring two men from the Sami. This was an ambitious plan. He was proposing to start further north than anyone had ever explored. Honestly, people thought Nansen was crazy. His plan was just too risky. He would only lead himself and his team to their deaths. Some suggested that he spend a season in Greenland to get a better feel of what lay ahead, but Nansen was undeterred. He was going to go in 1888. The last thing he wanted was to compete with an American team under Robert Perry. The one change Nansen did make was on the advice of Gustav Holm, the Danish explorer I just mentioned. 
Holm convinced Nansen to start his journey a little further south at an Inuit village at the farthest known northerly point on the east coast of Greenland. But other than that, Nansen was determined to move forward. He now had several tasks to complete if he was going to get his scheme off the ground. First, he had to obtain financing. Second, he had to assemble his team. And third, he had to outfit the expedition for the Greenland crossing. Regarding financing, Nansen approached the university in Christiania for a grant, estimating the expedition would cost 5,000 kron, which, if I did my math correctly, translates into about 45,000 US dollars in 2022 money. So, fairly modest. He was prepared to pay for it all himself if necessary. However, if he got public financing, he felt it would give the expedition a sense of national approval. The government, however, rejected the request for funds on January 4, 1888. But a few days later, a wealthy Danish businessman, Augustin Gamel, reached out to Nansen after reading about his plans in the newspaper, expressing interest in financing the expedition. A deal would be struck, and Nansen would have the money in hand by the end of the month. So, with money in the bank, let's turn to Nansen's team. Nansen would try and recruit some of Norway's more well-known skiers, but he would have no luck. People saw his plan as too risky, plus the idea of being away for at least half a year held little appeal to most men. Still, in time, Nansen would form his team. The first person I'll talk about is Otto Sverdrup. Sverdrup was a 33-year-old sailor and outdoorsman. He had grown up on a farm between a mountain and a fjord and had gone to sea at 17. He was a rugged, resourceful man and had been recommended by Nansen's brother, Alexander. Due to his common sense and resourcefulness, Sverdrup would become the unofficial second-in-command of the expedition. The second member of the team was Olaf Christian Dietrichsen, a 31-year-old military officer. The other two team members would come from the northern Sami people. Getting to Sami was difficult, as Nansen could not go and interview them himself. He would thus have to get someone to recruit them for him. The two Sami would not arrive in Christiania until April 16, 1888. They had traveled more than a thousand miles to join their team. Their names were Ula Nielsen Ravna and Samuel Johannesen Baltu. They showed up wearing the traditional clothing of the Sami, a blue jacket with red and yellow stripes. They spoke broken Norwegian. Neither man had ever been south of the Arctic Circle, and they had never heard of Greenland before being recruited for the expedition. They had been lured to the expedition by a salary of 800 kron, but in reality, it had been difficult to find anyone interested in the job. The main issue was that no one wanted to go away from home for such a long time frame. All of this meant that Nansen's recruits were not exactly what he wanted. Baltu was 27, but he was a river Sami, meaning he was settled. He was not one of the mountain Sami, who were nomads and survived by following their reindeer much of the year. Nansen had wanted both the men to be mountain Sami. The second guy, Ravna, was a mountain Sami, but he was 46 years old and had a wife and five children. Nansen was tempted to send both the men back, but this late in the game, he had little choice but to accept them into the team. Now, late in the process of forming the expedition, Nansen decided to add one more member. He would settle on 23-year-old Christian Christensen. Christensen was a noted skier and sailor and was known and recommended by Svedrup. With the addition of Christensen, the team was complete. That takes us to the outfitting of the expedition, and this is where Nansen will shine. Nansen studied all the reports of earlier polar explorers, seeking to find insight into how best to accomplish his goals. And thus, outfitting the expedition was critical to him. Now, everything he was doing was to be done with speed, simplicity, and mobility in mind. Nansen would go on to design and build all sorts of his supplies and tools from scratch. Taking it out from the Sami, he designed the sleeping bags using reindeer fur so they would be light and warm. For transportation, he tested sledges used by the Sami and Inuit, but settled on a design based on the kind used by Norwegian farmers. These had broad runners, like skis, and were versatile and durable. 
They used no iron. Instead, leather thongs were used to hold them together. These sledges would be pulled by the skiers. Nansen would test out one of the sledges by towing it from Bergen to Christiania. The result was a great success. Nansen's sledge design would be one of the most innovative aspects of the expedition. By the way, Nansen would never seriously consider using dogs, at least not yet. He toyed with using reindeer, but they would need to forage for food, which wasn't going to happen on an ice cap. Nansen also had new ski boots designed and built a stove that would work more efficiently in the cold and high altitude. As for clothing, he stuck to the idea of layers. Each man would wear four layers of light wool. This included underwear, a shirt, a sweater, and a jacket. The knee breeches and leggings were also made of wool. Nansen also had a wind jacket made. This was made of light cotton and based on the Inuit anorak. As for a tent, Nansen ordered it specially from Copenhagen. He had it made from various pieces, which would allow the various parts to be used as sails for the sledges if the opportunity came up. The other item on the list was food. Nansen was not too worried about scurvy, as the team would, theoretically, not be on the ice alone for a long time. What he needed was a high-caloric diet, like that used by Norwegians on mountain tours. Thus, he would order canned pemmican, a staple of polar travel for decades. Pemmican is a dried meat mixed with fat and formed into solid cakes. They are high in calories, perfect for men working hard. There would also be more, including skis, which we will talk more about next time. But I think you get the idea about Nansen's preparation. It was, to be honest, unlike most any polar expedition in history. He had taken the available knowledge and tried to provide a logical solution to the challenges ahead. So many times, the men running expeditions in this era lacked vision. It's almost as if they started outfitting a polar trip by going to the local department store. But not Nansen. To him, preparation was so critical, and it would help him survive what lay ahead. So with all the planning coming together, much of it at the last minute, Nansen had two other things on his plate. The first was that he was taking Inuit language lessons from a woman, Christiania, the wife of the retired governor of southern Greenland. That the expedition would interact with the Inuit was not a sure thing, but credit Nansen for preparing for any such encounter. The second item was his dissertation. Remember that? He had submitted his dissertation the previous November, and the staff at Christiania University had considered it for months. Now it was time for Nansen to defend his provocative paper. There would be three days of written exams, followed by Nansen's defense of his report. This entailed going through the devil's advocate process, where two opponents of the paper's results would essentially challenge Nansen and his findings. The date for his oral defense was April 28, 1888, just four days before he was set to depart for Greenland. Well, it's not like Nansen had anything else to do. Anyhow, the clash between Nansen and his opponents was fierce. The big thing was that Nansen was proposing some radical ideas, ideas that meant setting aside commonly accepted theories. Such thinking required an open mind, and in some ways, a leap of faith. To Nansen, he again probably saw himself as the hero in an Ibsen play, the scientist whose ideas are dismissed by the narrow-minded establishment because it threatens their own ideas and beliefs. No matter, despite recognizing the legitimate issues with Nansen's paper, the committee would also take note of his boldness and the deep ramifications of what he was proposing. They would thus grant Nansen his doctorate. Unfortunately, Nansen had departed for Greenland before the announcement was made. It will be many long months before Nansen finds out that he is now Dr. Nansen. And with that, Nansen and his team would set out on their expedition to cross Greenland. And that is where we will leave things for today. Next time, we will pick up Nansen as he heads to Greenland and begins his historic attempt to cross the world's largest island. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Please take care, and I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other independent podcasts, such as Attaboy Clarence and Ben Franklin's World.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.